He set up a bordello in San Francisco in an apartment on Telegraph Hill. He had an officer out there who uh, recruited a group of prostitutes whose job was to bring the men back to this apartment where this CIA operative would try to uh, monitor what happens when men are fed LSD or other drugs and then have sex. He'd be watching this through a one-way mirror while sitting on his portable toilet and drinking martinis out of a pitcher. This was your tax dollars at work. Operation Midnight Climax, as this bordello project was uh, nicknamed, was supposed to be a part of a program to help defend the United States against its external enemies. So how you can connect running a whorehouse in San Francisco with defending the United States against its foreign enemies is quite a stretch. And it shows you how far Gottlieb went and how little supervision uh, anybody exercised over him. This is deadairradio.org. That's the voice of author. Stephen Kinzer. We'll be discussing his book. My book is Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. He'll give us a great rundown of what you can expect while reading his book. Also, how the Grateful Dead have connections with the CIA's early experiments with LSD. I think I discovered the most powerful unknown American of the 20th century. Unless there was somebody else who was conducting experiments with drugs and all kinds of other extreme techniques over three continents, lived in total invisibility, and had what amounted to a license to kill by the U.S. government. So uh, Sidney Gottlieb, this unknown CIA figure who's the center of my book, is the man who created the poisons that were intended to kill Fidel Castro and other world leaders. But as I began researching his story, I realized that his role as poisoner-in-chief was actually just a sidelight. He devoted a decade for most of the 1950s and into the 1960s directing this CIA mind control project called MKUltra. MKUltra. And it was during those experiments that he conducted some of the most extreme tortures that were ever inflicted by Americans uh, with the permission of the U.S. government. The CIA decided at the beginning of the Cold War, so late 1940s, early 1950s, that the communists, the force of evil out there, the Soviets or the Chinese, had discovered the key to mind control. This was a fantasy. Actually, uh, they hadn't. But uh, we got caught up in a, a fantasy that the CIA itself had promulgated. The very word brainwashing was invented by a CIA propagandist to try to scare Americans. And it actually wound up scaring the CIA itself. So Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, decided that uh, it was urgent that the United States find its own tools for mind control. And he decided it was necessary to hire a chemist who could run this project. That's Sidney Gottlieb, this guy from the Bronx 
who was so different from uh, the aristocratic silver spoon types that ran the early CIA. So Gottlieb came in and became the chief CIA chemist, and in that capacity, he was also the director of MKUltra. The fact that Alan Dulles gave it that name, MKUltra, reflects how important he believed this program was. He thought that if the CIA could find a way to control people's minds, then its other minor successes of the early 1950s, like overthrowing the government of Guatemala or overthrowing the government of Iran, would fade into insignificance. Gottlieb's search was based on a principle that he developed early on. He decided that before you could insert a new mind into somebody's brain, you first had to blast away the mind that was in there. So he spent 10 years trying to find ways to destroy minds, to destroy spirits, to destroy bodies, to make uh, victims totally dependent on their interrogators. He carried out these horrifically extreme experiments in the United States and abroad. It's not amazing that he's not in the spotlight because he lived in total invisibility. So actually, my book is the biography of a guy who wasn't there. Nobody knew who he was. I got a photograph of him finally, and I was so excited. I told my publishers, uh, let's put this on the cover of the book. But they replied... That won't work because nobody's ever heard his name and nobody knows what he looks like. So they instead put a kind of a dark silhouette on the cover of the book. I do find it fascinating, though, that Gottlieb played this counterculture role as a young, unwitting godfather of the whole 60s youth rebellion. Gottlieb was a kind of Jekyll and Hyde character. By day, was conducting the most extreme experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any official or agency of the U.S. government. But meanwhile, in his private life, he was kind of a proto-hippie. He lived in an eco-cabin in the woods with no running water. He meditated, he studied Buddhism and wrote poetry, he grew his own vegetables, he got up before dawn to milk the goats. He was a very gentle-hearted torturer. He was a super nice guy as, as a torturer. He was really the first LSD guru. Gottlieb was fascinated with LSD. He believed, as one of his chemists said, that it could be the key to unlock the universe. Maybe LSD could be the key to mind control. Of course, it turned out that it's wildly unpredictable and it couldn't be used for anything like that. But Gottlieb was so fascinated with its potential that in 1953, he persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. It's a he persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD for $240,000. He brought this to the United States, and he used it in two ways. 
One way was as a part of the drug cocktails that he administered in these horrific experiments. In one case, for example, at a prison in Kentucky, he had seven African-American inmates isolated and fed triple doses of LSD every day for 77 days without knowing what it was they were being given. So that certainly is a way to destroy a person's mind. But there was another aspect of his LSD research, and that was the non-coercive part. He gave some of his LSD to clinics and hospitals. He set up a couple of bogus foundations that contacted these hospitals and clinics and told them uh, there's an interest in paying for research into this new psychoactive drug. So we'll pay you to do this and we'll bring you the LSD for free and your job will be to advertise in newspapers for volunteers to come in and be paid a small sum of money to take LSD so their reactions can be monitored. So who were among the very first people who came in to try Sidney Gottlieb's LSD? One of them was Ken Kesey. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out of his LSD experiments. He liked the LSD so much that he actually got a job in the hospital so he could steal the LSD out of the medicine chests. And that work in the hospital became the basis for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and all the big acid parties that Ken Kesey started. Another guy who got his first LSD from Sidney Gottlieb was Allen Ginsberg the radical poet who wound up being a great propagandist or what he called the healthy personal adventure of using LSD. Ginsburg chose to listen to Tristan and Isolde, the Wagner opera, on his headphones while he was taking LSD. Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead, got his first LSD from Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA. Robert Hunter wrote a fascinating six-page report on his first experience with LSD. It's not written in any linear style, but if you're familiar with Grateful Dead lyrics, it fits right in. And you may know that Robert Hunter decided he never wanted to tour with the Grateful Dead anymore or be an integral member of the group because he wanted to devote himself more to the psychic voyaging that he set off on uh, with LSD. Now, none of these people knew that. They all, decades later, came to realize that they had gotten their first LSD from Sidney Gottlieb, from MKUltra, from the CIA. And that's why John Lennon, when asked in an interview once about LSD, said, uh, we must always remember to thank the CIA. And in fact, Tim Leary is another person. Tim Leary's first interest in psychedelic drugs was sparked by an article that appeared in Life magazine in 1957, in which a couple of Americans uh, described their trip to Mexico to find the magic mushroom. Well, Gottlieb was fascinated by this, too. Tim Leary read that article. He was so interested in the magic mushroom that he went to Mexico, and he found it, and he tried it himself. That was the beginning. From there, he decided to try LSD, and one thing led to another, and that was how Tim Leary became the great acid guru. But what he didn't know, nor could he have known, is that that trip to Mexico that was the subject of the Life magazine article that set him off on his quest was financed 
by Sidney Gottlieb and MK Ultra and the CIA. They too were interested in the magic mushroom. So without Gottlieb and his LSD, no Grateful Dead, no One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, no Allen Ginsberg, no Tim Leary. The irony, of course, is that the drug that Gottlieb thought would give the CIA the ability to control people's minds actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA believed in. Gottlieb must have recognized this towards the end of his life because he lived up until the 1990s. wrote quite a list of what his experience had taught him. Those lists, those techniques, were then later used as the basis for American programs in Vietnam. They were used as the basis for uh, manuals that were passed on to secret police forces in Latin America during the 1980s. And they have become the basis for techniques that were used in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo up to this day. So for a certain degree of what he worked on, the influence carries on to this day. And then, of course, that wasn't all he did at the CIA. So after 10 years of running MKUltra, he then went on to this job of making the poisons to kill foreign leaders, which makes him the poisoner in chief. And then he spent seven years as the director of the CIA gimmick shop, the technical services staff that makes all the tools for spies. There, his wild imagination, perhaps fueled by his 200 LSD trips, uh, allowed him to come up with all these fantastic implements that you see in James Bond movies. I think by the time the LSD counterculture began, Gottlieb had moved on. He never intended for LSD to be used this way. How he reacted when it became clear that private citizens were able to produce LSD, I've never been able to figure out. He didn't confide uh, his uh, thoughts to paper, and if he had, uh, that paper would have long disappeared. And actually, the way LSD turned out to be used, of course, stigmatized it, people who used it were demonized, but I think now, today, finally, after we've gone through these generations of uh, denunciations of LSD and the effects that it had, we're now coming into an era where I think LSD and psychedelic drugs are uh, being taken more seriously as uh, mental health, uh, therapeutic uh, techniques. A new institute to study psychoactive drugs has just been founded at Johns Hopkins University. So I think, finally, LSD is being pulled away from the coercive and the recreational uh, identities that it had in the past. And finally, we now might be able to get to a point where uh, its true potential might be honestly explored. He was an extraordinary figure, a visionary chemist, uh, a very gentle-hearted torturer. I asked myself, how could he have justified this? How could he have fit these two sides of his life together? We don't know, but one speculation might be this. Maybe he thought to himself, I'm fighting a force, communism, that wants to destroy 
the possibility of individual life. And therefore, anything that I do to fight that force is justified. I think this is part of his message for today, which is he lost sight of that question, is there ever a limit to the amount of evil you can do in pursuing what you think is a good cause before the evil begins to outweigh the good? The commitment to a great cause is the ultimate justification for committing immoral acts. Patriotism is among the most transcendent and appealing of all causes. And I think Gottlieb uh, has a message for us. He allowed himself to be caught up in the uh, uh, impression that the country was under such a terrible threat that uh, normal rules of ethics and morality and law had to be disregarded. We're in a situation like that right now. We, we're being told that because terrorism is all around us, now we need to have more surveillance, uh, fewer civil liberties, we have to be uh, willing to adjust to uh, more restrictions on our privacy. Uh, so I think the danger that he uh, symbolizes to us is that we lose sight of our own ethical and moral bearings because we've been whipped up into a frenzy by people telling us that we're under terrible threat. Maybe Gottlieb was able to do this because he honestly felt that destroying people's minds in secret prisons in Germany and ruining the lives of people in Canada and across America and in East Asia was a way to defeat communism. It's hard to imagine how you can connect the two. But in his mind, he must have thought that his experiments were contributing to a patriotic cause. And, and that's a good uh, object lesson for all of us. One of the interesting things about this book is uh, there's so many blanks. You can try to project. So spending a few years with this bizarre character while writing this book has uh, answered a lot of questions for me, but I, I think it's raised even more. <laughs>